motion. A human being, Adam, had got into this mess. A human being, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, would get it out again. The story of Genesis chapter 1 through 3, we see in Genesis 1, 1 and 2 a wonderful world, and we see in chapter 3, spoiled by the rebellion of God's image bearing creatures, is in the back of this passage all along, in the back of Paul's mind all along. What is concerned here is with the job that Jesus Christ has been given to do through His death, burial, and particularly here the resurrection. And this passage here gives us great insight into God's understanding of Jesus and His sovereign rule of the world in history. And it's the, it's the heart of what Jesus had spent His, his short three-year career talking about. It's about the coming of God's kingdom. Both the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit that is given are not just something that just happened in the past, but they are things that affect the end, is what Paul wants us to see. Through the resurrection of Jesus, God has set in motion the events of the end in such a way that they will be brought to a final consummation. The resurrection has taken place in history. And the end has been set in motion. The resurrection of Jesus Christ guaranteed for Paul the resurrection of all who are in Christ. And that's the point that he'll make here in verses 20-22. through 22. He'll use a picture of first fruits and he'll picture Adam and Christ and, and compare and contrast them. And the problem of the Corinthians here was they denied the resurrection for themselves and in such a way it brought them a less than adequate view to understate it here of God as the Lord of history and that's what they're missing. So Paul here in, this, in these verses will correct their understanding that there was no Christian resurrection after death. Sure, they said Jesus had risen from the dead, but there's no resurrection for us, they thought. And Paul will say, yes, there is a Christian resurrection after death. And he will show the order and why this is central to moment by moment living. What I want us to understand this morning is this. We live in a sinful, broken world and it's not because of everybody else. It's because of you and me. But when we fix our eyes on the future resurrection, it gives us power now. So we have the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we need to look back to. We have the future resurrection that we need to look forward to. And then, this, and then in verses 29-34, through 34, we have our own hearts that we need to look Within, And so we need to fix our eyes in the future resurrection for power now because we live in a sinful, broken world by looking back, looking ahead, and looking within. Let's look at verses 21, 20 and 21 first this morning. Ethan read, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. What I want us to see here this morning is picking up on the theme here of verses 12 through 19. Paul has said that if the resurrection is not true, then it means all these things are not. That Messiah is not alive. Our message has no basis. That our belief has no basis. The New Testament as a whole is a lie. There's no escape from hell. You are dead in your sins. Paul said if the resurrection is 
a lie. And therefore, our lives are meaningless. As Gary read, we are men uh, most, most pitiable, most miserable here. But notice what he says in verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead. So it is true. God has risen from the dead and the person of Jesus Christ is alive. And, and he says, and if so, he is the first fruits of them that slept. You might be wondering, what is Paul meaning by the first fruits? And here's what he's saying. He's, he's referring back to an Israelite feast in Leviticus 23, verses 9 through 14. You could study on your own sometime. And as a Lamb of God, Jesus died on Passover. And at the, at the, at the, at the feast of first fruits, they would hold up the sheaves of, of some of the, um, uh, uh, first, uh, produce from the harvest. And that priest would wave that, 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 let's just say the barley here, the first fruits. He would wave that sheaf of the barley, the first fruits before the Lord. And it was a sign that the rest of the harvest, the entire harvest, belonged to him, and this was the first fruits. And Jesus here is the first fruits of the resurrection. He rose from the dead three days later on the first day of the week. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, it's God's assurance to us that we will also be raised one day as a part of the future harvest. To believers, death is only sleep. The body sleeps, but the soul is at home with the Lord. And after the resurrection, the body will be awakened and glorified and brought together with the Spirit. So we need to look back and remember Jesus' resurrection. If the head has gone through, the rest of the body will, go, will, will, will follow. When I was a kid, we had a lot of raspberry bushes behind our house. And uh, they were wild raspberry bushes. And, and we would um, uh, try to pick the raspberries. And sometimes we would also try to make forts in the raspberry bushes and kind of hideaway places for hide and seek and other games. And um, you know, if you've been through the, the bramble bushes there of the, uh, uh, w- w- in the summer with shorts and, and, and short sleeves, what that does to your skin there. But we found if we could get our, get our, get our head and our shoulders through some of those holes and some of those gaps in the, in, the, in the raspberry bushes, the rest of our bodies could follow through. We could get the rest of us through. And so it is with Jesus Christ. He has risen from the dead. The head has gotten through the brambles. And therefore, Paul is saying, the rest of the the harvest, the rest of the body of Jesus Christ, the rest of those who believe will follow through. It's a certainty. It's a guarantee. Yes, the head has come through and that's a guarantee. But we look forward to a future resurrection, but we look forward to a future resurrection because we look back to the real resurrection of Jesus Christ, the beginning resurrection, the first fruits of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and ours will be real just as well. But then notice what he says. We also need to look back because of this. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. In one of the national forests in Oregon, there's a fungus that has spread throughout the tree roots for about 2,000 acres. And this fungus that has spread throughout these tree roots makes it the largest living organism that's ever been found. It's known as the honey mushroom, and it formed from one single microscopic spore. And it weaves its way in these black uh, shoestring kind of filaments through the forest, and it's done this for about 2,400 years, and it kills trees as it grows. 
one of the botanists says, when you're on the ground, you don't notice the pattern. You just see dead trees and clusters. But if you would dig into the roots of these trees that have been affected in these 2,000 acres for about 2,400 years, you would find something that looks like white latex paint. And, and, and what they are is, 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 is these um, uh, growths from this fungus that draw water and carbohydrates from the tree to feed the fungus like a parasite. And it interferes with the trees absorbing the nutrients so the tree doesn't get what it needs to eat and it dies. And these, these, these little shoestring filaments can stretch as much as 10 feet into the soil and evade the tree, tree roots through um, combination of water pressure and, and other enzymes. And so it's really like a 2,000 acre gigantic mushroom from a single spore. And that's what Paul, in essence, is picturing here in Adam. Sin began in a single act of disobedience, but is spread across the entire human race as Adam was the father of humanity. He says this, For since by man came death. And he says in verse 22, For as in Adam all die. That's the bad news, isn't it? Because of Adam we are under the condemnation of God. Because of Adam's sin and because of our joining in that and that rebellion against God and wanted to go our own way, we are standing in opposition to rebellion against God. We do not want God. We want God. To, we want to resist God. And the Scripture says because of that, we will not flourish and God turns us over to our own destruction which eventually leads to eternal hell forever. That's the bad news. But notice what he says here in verse 21. Again, he says, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So here's, here's, the, here's the deal here. Man st- stands, we're born sinners, and we stand in our original sin opposed to God wanting our own way. Scripture makes that very clear. But we saw in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1-11, through 11, Jesus Christ died for our sins. Jesus Christ took the payment of sin upon Himself. He absorbed that for us. He was our substitute. He died in our place. And therefore, on the heels of that, He was resurrected. Meaning, God approved that sacrifice. And all who believe and put their trust in what Jesus has done and lean upon that alone the Bible says are His people. The Bible says are believers, are followers of Jesus Christ. And therefore, in verse 22, it says, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. That's all who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. So in a sinful, broken world, fix your eyes on the resurrection for power now by looking back at what God has done. Looking back at what God has done through Jesus' sacrifice his burial, and His resurrection. But also, in verse 22 through 28, look ahead. Look ahead. Fix your eyes on the future resurrection for power now by looking ahead. Notice what He says in verse 22 through 28. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Notice, shall all. So there's a future here, a future resurrection. And He says it in this way, verse 23. But every man in his own order, or according to this order, it will happen. And so He lays out the scheme here, the plan here of the future. 
Christ the first fruits. We see that with the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Afterward, they that are Christ at His coming. Then comes the end when He shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when He shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For He must reign till He has put all enemies under His feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. So what He's saying is this. Jesus Christ, His historical resurrection was the first fruits. And then, as He said in verse 22, all those in Christ shall be made alive, that they will follow a future resurrection for Jesus' people that happens in verse 23 at Jesus' coming. Beloved, our loved ones who have gone on before us have not experienced the resurrection yet. But there will come a day when Jesus returns when this happens. Afterward, they that are Christ at His coming. Then comes the end. So as we said, the resurrection starts the ball rolling. And as we get closer and as Jesus Christ appears, that ball is hurtling down, down, the, down, down the hill at light speed here. And it is bringing an end to all things. But the resurrection set it in motion. And comes the end when you shall deliver up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when you shall put down all rule and all authority and power. Now, Paul here doesn't list all the details of the prophetic timeline and calendar here, but he says here's the key events here that the resurrection impacts here. He says, uh, obviously, Jesus' resurrection here uh, occurred historically. Okay, that's what, he, that's, what he, that's what he's talking about with the first fruits of verse 23. And then when Jesus appears... That resurrection, our faith will be sight. And then the end of the age and then the eternal kingdom when He shall deliver up the kingdom to God, even the Father. Put down all rule and all authority and power. That means that the devil has been thrown into the lake of fire. That sin and suffering has ended. We're talking about Revelation chapter 21 and 22. We're looking at this idea here uh, 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 at the end. When, when there is no more sickness, when there is no more death, when there is no more tears ever to come again. And that's what the resurrection delivers. And so when we look back at the resurrection and remind of the historical event, we also need to be looking ahead here. And that's what the Corinthians were not doing. Imagine, and I've given this illustration before, but you could picture the Gospel in these kind of three different scenarios, three different angles here. The good news here. Imagine you're sitting quietly in a, in a, in a, in a small restaurant with a couple of friends, and the door opens and a stranger rushes in and he has this crazy, wild, excited look on his face. Good news, he says. You'll never guess what happened. I mean, this is, this is the best news you can, even, you can even imagine. What could he be talking about? What could this good news be? That he would barge into a restaurant and tell strangers about it. Right? There's, here's, here's, here's some possible answers to that. Maybe the doctors told him that they managed to cure his daughter of disease that was killing her. That's great news for his family and friends. And I, I can see why you would be excited to share that with strangers. But not everybody would just share that with strangers. Or perhaps it's this reason. Perhaps he heard that the local football team uh, had won a great victory against their rivals down the road in Los Angeles. <laughs> and some parts of 
Our country, some people would celebrate that as really good news. But there would probably be some people there at the restaurant who might have even been watching that game anyway. So why leave the celebration until, I don't know. Or perhaps, he's living in an area where uh, there's a lot of unemployment and high poverty, and he learned that in that area, there were huge reserves of coal, oil, and gas, and it would provide thousands of new jobs and a new economy and a new start for everyone. And he wanted everybody to know about this. Now, in each of those different possible scenarios of why he was excited and saying there was good news. There's something that's similar with the gospel of Jesus Christ or the resurrection. First of all, the news of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection isn't something that just has happened out of the blue. It's something that God has unfolded that God has had a promise planned for, that He has promised through Abraham that through all through your seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The news is about something that has happened, that because of it, it happening, everything now will be different. Like the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in each of those three stories, that good news has the idea of A time period where you're waiting with hope. There's a waiting. For example, let's say that the scenario was that doctor, was scenario number one where the doctor had um, uh, found the cure for, for, for for his daughter's disease. Well, the child would still be in the hospital, but the family is now waiting for that to get better, right? And so, so, so the gospel, the resurrection, is, 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 is kind of like all three of those things here. The great victory against the old rivals has been secured. Uh, 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 there, there, is, there is a surplus of grace, there's a surplus of new life that will burst in to those who uh, that hear the good news. Uh, the, the, the daughter has been cured of the disease. But we still live in a broken, sinful world, but that one day will be forever cured. And the idea again here in verses 22-28 is God has set in motion a series of events that have to do with the resurrection and the defeat of the ultimate rival, which he identifies as death. And this happens at the coming of Christ when He raises from the dead those who are His. Now you probably understand... Or if you don't, here's what, here's what the Jews in, in Jesus' day and Paul's day uh, long for. They long for a kingdom uh, here when, when, when God would become king over the whole world and he would restore Israel to glory and He would take care of, of Israel's enemies, defeated the nations that oppressed God's people for so long, and they would live under that here. And, 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 and it had, they knew it had to happen. I mean, if God really was God, there could be no doubt. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth showed Paul that it had happened and it would happen. All of God's people being raised at the end of history. That's what they expected. And Paul says, well, one person, the king who was supposed to reign over this kingdom, has been raised in the middle of history. That was an unexpected thing. That was a stumbling block for the Jews. 
And so, Paul here is talking about things happening in their proper order. He wants us to understand that the resurrection of Jesus Christ affects our life now, but it will affect our lives in an even fuller way in the future. An incredible way. It is a front that is advancing here. It is, it is, it is the eventual order here the, that God will bring to the world when Jesus Returns. Notice what he says in verse 25. When does this happen? When he shall have put down all rule and authority and power. And we see a broken, sinful world, don't we? We see a world that is not in accord with God. But there will come a day when Jesus returns, verse 25 says, He must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Well, that enemy is pretty... Pretty obvious in our day, isn't it? Death is pretty obvious. God is standing here at the goal. He is standing here at the end and saying, Jesus Christ's resurrection is what I am using to take the world to bring it to where it needs to be. And Paul quotes Psalm 8. He quotes Psalm 110. And he says this. Verse 27, For He has put all things under His feet, That's Psalm 110, talking about Jesus as the Messiah Lord and His authority, His Lordship. But when He says all things are put under Him, it is manifest or made plain that He is accepted, which did put all things under Him. Jesus Himself is is submissive to His Father. Verse 28, And when all things shall be subdued to Him, then shall the Son also Himself be subject to Him that put all things under Him, that God... Maybe all in all. In other words, again, history is moving to a climax. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the ball that got that rolling here. In other words, the story told in Genesis is completed by those words in Psalm 8 and those words in Psalm 10 and these words here in Psalm, or in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus will put all enemies under His feet. One German theologian tells a story of a young soldier during the war who reached out to pick a bouquet of lilacs. And as he did, he was picking these lilacs, he uncovered a half-decayed body of another fellow soldier underneath the bush. And he writes this. He drew back in horror, not because he had never seen a dead man before. He drew back because of the screaming contradiction between the dead man in the flowering bush. Now, would that soldier's reaction have been different if he had become, if he had come upon a, a dead and faded lilac bush instead? No, well, I mean we know a blooming lilac bush, as beautiful as they are and as wonderful as they smell, in my opinion, will one day become a withered lilac bush. They don't live forever. That's life, right? But the horror of a man lying there in a decayed condition, in contrast to the beautiful lilac bush, it didn't. It, it's not how it's supposed to be, is it? It's not how it's supposed to be. And you think about our funerals, right? We clothe that body in the best dress. We apply makeup to its waxen-like features, right? And that body is stiff. And it, when you look at that body, it does look like it's barely asleep. And we, sometimes we can almost convince ourselves that there is a beating heart underneath of that. 
And we dress it up to, 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 to maybe make it not as alien and strange as it really is. And we kiss the corpse. We're met with the reality of the darkness of death. But look at verse 26 again. The last enemy that we hope will be destroyed, or maybe destroyed, or I wish is destroyed, is death. It doesn't say that. It's a promise there in verse 26. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. You understand that, yes, we, we, we say someone died of natural causes. But you know, theologically, that's not exactly correct. Animal was not built to die. Sin brought death. The presence of death is an intrusion to God's natural order. It's what He allowed to happen. It's, it's, it's natural only to the extent that nature suffers from the stroke that fell upon Adam as a consequence for its sin. Nature endures death. But it is not willingly, Paul says in Romans 8. It groans in protest. It loathes the bondage of decay, Romans 8.21. And death is the last enemy. Death is the tyrant who acts on sin's behalf, whose sway over us was broken at the cross, but will be fully realized at the resurrection in freedom. Death is our enemy. And kind of like the law, because we can't live up to and it condemns us, it's a schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. The wages of sin is death, right? But the gift of God is eternal life. The lesson of death is a hard lesson because it exposes the severity and the true nature of sin. The law and death here, the condemnation here, uh, 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 brings us face to face with the reality of sin and pushes us to Christ. And notice how Paul words this here. After he says the last enemy that should be destroyed is, is death. And he talks about how Jesus Christ has is, is, is submitted Himself to His Father. And there will be one day when all things will be subdued, submitted to Him in verse 28. And then it says at the end of verse 28, He'll give this to the Father that God may be all in all. God may be all in all. This is the true significance of the resurrection. We look back. We look ahead. Thirdly, in verses 29 through 34, we look within. We look within. He says this Else, what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? He says, Let's take your argument again. He's going to pick up on what he said in verses 12 through 19 and play out their logical conclusion of, of what would happen if they said there's no resurrection. What shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? And why stand we in jeopardy or in danger every hour? I protest by your rejoicing which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink. For tomorrow we die. Be not deceived. Evil communications or companions corrupt good manners. Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not this knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. So what he's talking about here is the effects of denying the resurrection. And he starts off with one of the verses that is one of the most um, 
debated verses in the scripture, actually. He talks about the baptism of the dead. And there, and, uh, there have been identified four, at least 40 different interpretations of what that could mean. Including the Mormons who take that extremely uh, out of context and build a whole doctrine of it. At the very least, we don't we don't know what honestly we we, we are not sure exactly what he means by this. At the very least, perhaps it's something as simple as um, the the idea of washing the body uh, uh, there uh, uh, before they would bury that body. And and when you when they would wash the body, it was a symbol of of dignity uh, that men are made in the image of God. It's a symbol of the nobility of humanity. And it kind of begs the question, why would you wash a dead body and, 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 and prepare it so that it, so that it is acceptable and nice before you put it in, into, into, the, into the tomb? And it begs the question because you recognize that there is something noble about that. That there is a dignity to being made in the image of God. Um, uh, and, and, and this contrast again of death and the washing here, there's a hope that something will happen. There's a hope that there's a future, that this is not all there is. And perhaps that's what Paul's referring to. I can't be sure. But Paul is saying this baptism of the dead here that you're doing, don't you recognize here that, that, that it, it makes no sense without a resurrection? And he says this in verse 30, Why stand we in jeopardy every hour in danger? And what he's talking about is his own experience here as he labors for the Lord and he's in Ephesus writing this letter and he, and he has, he has, he has um, uh, faced all kinds of opposition. He has put his life, his necks in jeopardy here for the Lord. And he says if the resurrection is, isn't true, what's, why, why are we risking our necks? What's the point of this? We ought to make life easy for ourselves, right? He says, verse 30, When I protest by your rejoicing which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. And what he means by that is not the spiritualized sense. I die daily, like I give my life to Christ every day. He's talking about the physical danger he encounters. And he illustrates that in verse 32. He says, If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it me if the dead rise not? And he pictures the gladiator games. And he's in Ephesus here. And he, he is not engaged in literal gladiator games. But he's engaged with men who act like wild beasts against him. You think of the riot in Ephesus. Great as Diana of the Ephesians. Wanting to lynch Paul and the others. The opposition. He says, why am I enduring all these things? For the gospel's sake, if there is no resurrection of the dead. He says, if the dead rise not, let's live it up. And he quotes from Isaiah 22, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Let's, why, why, why are we making life hard for ourselves if there's no life after this? Let's make it pretty easy and live it up. Then in verse 33 and 34, he says, the behavior that's among you that is spread is corrupting because you have not based your life on a future resurrection. Be not deceived, evil communications, evil companions, corrupt good manners. And we've seen this throughout the church of Corinth. Like what, what, are, what are some of the things that have happened in the church of Corinth that have been pretty sinful? What are some of the things that we've seen all the way back in 1 through 4 and chapter 5? What are some of the things? 
divisions, bickerings, backbiting, stabbing, backstabbing. What else? Yes. Put yourself under particular people. Right, right. Camps, right? What else? Chapter 5. Sexual immorality, a man living with his stepmother. Chapter 6, fornicating with prostitutes. Corrupting the Lord's Supper, righteousness of drunkenness. Yep, yep. And, and, not, and not taking care of the poor there in the Lord's Supper and selfishness, etc. Chapter 12, the, the misconstruing of the gifts and how they fit. And we see 13, that's supposed to anchor us back into the into the truths of Jesus, and then 14, the, the chaos that was going on in the assembly. The me, 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 right? That's what was going on. Why would they live like that? Paul says it's because you don't understand the resurrection. You don't understand the resurrection here. Evil company corrupts good habits here. Evil conversations, such as those that deny the resurrection of the dead, can only have a corrupting effect on your character. And so Paul says, awake to righteousness and do not sin. And he says, some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. And he's talking about their assembly. If not grasp the truth, the wisdom of God, 1 Corinthians 2, of the death, burial, and resurrection of God, and the implications that has in your life. One pastor talks about a friend of his who used to work at a denominational office in Minnesota and one of his jobs was to travel to little small communities where they didn't have many churches to do the funerals. And he'd go out with the undertaker and they would drive together the undertaker's hearse. And one time when they were on their way back from a funeral, uh, this pastor's friend, John, was feeling tired and decided he would take a nap. And he said, I'll just lie down in the back of the hearse. And that sounds like a creepy thing to do, but this is a true story. The guy who was driving the hearse pulled into the gas station because he's running low on gas and the, and the service station attendant is filling up the tank and he freaked out because there's a body stretched out in the back and he looks in the window and John, because the car had stopped, wakes up and opens his eyes and kind of sits up and he knocks on the window and waves at the attendant, right? <laughs> the guy ran away. He said he'd never seen it to be run so fast in his life. Listen, when people see life where they are expecting death, they start running. Right? On the third day, think about it. Everything changed. Everybody thought they were just going to see death. And what they saw was life with the appearance of Jesus Christ. And after the third day, as a matter of history, his Jesus followers who had been shattered, who had been disillusioned, who had been scattered, who had been heartsick after the crucifixion, went out to face all kinds of difficulties and suffering and imprisonment and spread the word because they believed they had seen life where they were expecting death and they believed that their life would also follow. That's why Paul says he endures the sufferings at Ephesus. So what does that mean for you and me? How does the resurrection play out in your own endurance for Jesus? It's our living hope. It's our living hope. It is, it is, it is, it is, it is, it is not because of the resurrection that we just do whatever we want. It's because of the resurrection that empowers us for Jesus' work. Did you ever drive a big truck or been on a little bridge when a big truck went over it? I'm not talking about, I'm talking about one of the little, you know, country bridges here. It says such and such a limit of pounds here. The bridge shakes, right? 
Um, we went down to the uh, to the Union Fair, and some of the field had flooded from the river, and we were skating on it. And there was some ice that was a little bit thin, though it's, the water's not deep there. And 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 they were my kids were all upset with me because I was making it crack. So a big man steps on the thin ice. There's 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 some kind of a, a quake in the ice. And friends, because of Jesus' resurrection, when Jesus steps into a person's life, there is a big earthquake, right? There's a reordering here. If Jesus was only some spiritual guru, like the Hindus, if He was just a great man, like George Washington, if He was just a great teacher, like Socrates, if He was just a genie of a lamp, there would be some limits on His rights over us, right? But if He's God... There's things that aren't not that aren't negotiable. Imagine you had a friend who was dying of a pretty rare disease, and you bring this friend to a doctor, <clears throat> and the doctor says you're going to be dead in a week. I can cure you, but I want you to know if I give you the the cure, um, there's just one thing it'll 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 keep you alive for the rest of your life, but you can never eat chocolate again. Your friend says, no chocolate, forget it, right? Some of you might. But we would say, you're crazy, right? You're crazy, right? And so Jesus' resurrection empowers Paul and enables him to deny himself, to live for Jesus because he knows the best is yet to come. This is not our best life now. As Joel Osteen says, there is a future life that is far greater. And Paul says, why stand we in jeopardy every hour, in danger every hour? I'm facing danger daily, verse 31. Why am I fighting for the cause of the gospel in verse 32? The dead rise not. Let's eat and drink for the tomorrow. No, Paul says, because of the resurrection. That's how I am alive unto righteousness, as we read in Romans chapter 6. Ken Davis writes about a woman who looked out her window and she saw a German shepherd shaking a rabbit, shaking the life of a rabbit. And her family didn't get along very well with these neighbors, so she realized this is going to be a little bit of a relational fracture. So she grabs a broom, and she starts hitting the dog with the broom until the German shepherd drops the dead rabbit out of its mouth. She panics. She doesn't know what to do. So she grabs a rabbit. She takes it inside. She gives it a bath. She blow dries it so it's fluffy. She combs it till the rabbit looks really good, and she sneaks it into the neighbor's yard and puts the rabbit up in his cage and just kind of leans it against the cage. An hour later, she hears screams coming from next door. She asks her neighbor, what's going on? The neighbor said, it's our rabbit, our rabbit. He died two weeks ago. We buried him, and now he's back. (laughs) Right? We know dead rabbits stay dead. Right? The Jews knew dead rabbis would stay dead. They had piles of them, right? Jesus was propped up so that you and I get propped up. Jesus was raised from the dead so you and I live for righteousness, as Paul says. That's the dynamics of the Christian life. Not in our own power, but as Ephesians 1 says, in resurrection power. Resurrection power. The moment that you receive Jesus as Savior, 
The power of the Holy Spirit comes into your life. And friends, it is the identical power that raised Jesus and allowed Him to walk through a stone tomb. The same thing that raised Jesus from the dead. And if it's that same power that you and I will, should be able to say, wow, that power enabled Jesus to walk through a physical stone tomb with a sealed door on it. Are there areas of your life that that resurrection power, things that you think are sealed, things that you think have been uh, impenetrable to the power of Jesus, that His resurrection power can't touch? No. See, we think we have immovable slabs in our life. Bitterness that we just can't get rid of. Insecurity that haunts us wherever we go. A habit. A sin that haunts us. Fears. If Jesus can split open a tomb and walk out, Holy Spirit in you can conquer those same things. The more you know Jesus, Paul says, the more I want to grow in knowing the power of His resurrection. In a sinful, broken world that you and I are surrounded by and you and I have contributed to, fix your eyes on the resurrection for power now by looking Jesus. Perhaps you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior. You have no relationship or fellowship with Him that has come to the truth of God's Word. Maybe in your mind you have described Jesus, but it is not what the Bible describes Him as. And when it all comes down to it, you've added Jesus perhaps as a committee member of your life instead of Jesus as the only Savior of your life. Today is a day of salvation. Jesus' resurrection is a historical fact, historically true. But Jesus' resurrection is not just a moment in history. Jesus' resurrection raises you from death to life if you put your faith and trust in what Jesus has done. And believer this morning, are you living in light of the resurrection power that's in you? I didn't very well this week. I was very frustrated, very angry, very selfish in so many different ways by people intruding upon my perfect little kingdom. And the thing that motivated me and caused me to repent of that this week was that that's not me. That's not the real me. That me's been dead and buried with Christ. Jesus paid for that anger and selfishness and that old, destructive, decaying kingdom. The real me is alive in Christ. And I can give myself to other people because of that. And I had to repent of that this week on many occasions. And it's going to probably happen again when I get home in about 25 minutes. (laughs) The resurrection provides the power to do that. Let's pray. As your heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as the crucified and risen Lord and Savior, would you please speak to me after the service and I would love to share from Scripture God's plan for knowing how you can have friendship with God. 
And believer, I don't know what it is. What are those slabs in your life that you think are immovable? Those stone enclosures, those stone prisons? Will you trust the Lord Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit and His church, His community to help you with those things? He loves to deliver. He loves to make the captives free. And if you need help with that, this comes up over and over again and you're not seeing continued advance, not perfection, but continued advance, a trend toward God in this. There are many capable people in our congregation and certainly myself would also uh, love to help uh, you walk through the Word of God and apply the truths of the Word of God in a way that renews your mind and puts on the new person of Christ as takes off the old man. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for resurrection power. In Jesus' name, Amen. You're dismissed.